want to ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning back to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. Over the past several weeks, we have drawn encouragement from this letter as Peter has been writing for that very purpose to encourage believers in the midst of life's difficulties, to encourage us to endure suffering, to overcome and to remember our place and our purpose in God's family. Peter's primary audience at the time in which he wrote this letter had been subjected to an increasing amount of persecution. Uh, We've been talking about that as we've looked at 1 Peter. They were looked on by suspicion from their community, and primarily because the people in their community didn't understand their convictions of faith. They didn't understand what it meant to be a Christian. They didn't understand what it meant to follow Christ. All that they understood was those Christians were not like them. And it was a cause for, um, for mockery. It was a cause for division. It was a, it was a cause for, um, for people uh, slandering one another and, uh, and for all kinds of accusations to arise against the Christian community. And we've talked about some of those things, Christians being accused of cannibalism and, and incest and, and all kinds of things because of a misunderstanding um, between some of the language that was being used in the Christian church. But primarily, this persecution arose because the Christians didn't worship the gods that their community worshipped. And I think that's something that we can attest to in, in our culture today is that a large part of our culture does not worship the same God that we worship, does not worship the same way that we worship, and as we come together to worship this morning, we are standing apart from the world, and uh, the world increasingly is hostile towards people who stand apart from their way of doing things, and uh, Peter's letter is meant to be an encouragement to us as we seek to stand firm in the faith. Um, Peter's audience also being martyred, increasing number of martyrs coming out of the church uh, because of their failure not only to worship the way the rest of the world did, but in particular to worship their emperor. And so Peter, throughout this letter, he reminds believers of the promises that we have through Jesus Christ, that we have an eternal glory that awaits us, that is far beyond all comparison, that is reserved for us in heaven and cannot be taken away. And so he encourages us with an eternal perspective. He encourages us and reminds us throughout this letter that we, as long as we're here on earth, that we have a responsibility to grow and and to mature in our faith as we seek to represent the one who saved us, to represent Christ, to represent the truths of the gospel, and to share them with others. Most recently, Peter has reminded us of the work that... uh, that the work that we do as Christians in seeking to serve Christ, he tells us in chapter 3, verse 17, that um, that that can cause suffering for us. And in in that verse, he says that it is better to suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And he goes on to, to, to talk to the church and to encourage us as believers to keep our eyes focused on Christ to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, that is to focus our attention on Him and to follow His example of what it means to endure unjust suffering. When we do what is right, we serve as an example to the world, even if they reject us for it. 
And when we continue in righteousness and persevere in good, even when we are mistreated, taken advantage of, offended, our goal should never be retaliation against those who offend us, but rather grace that we might demonstrate the love of Christ, who, though he was innocent, was tortured and was executed on a Roman cross. And here's the beauty of Christ's position and action. He didn't have to take it, but he submitted himself to the will of the Father in order to glorify his Father. Christ, who could have at any point retaliated against those who were tormenting him, who were torturing him, his executors, those who were mocking him, spitting on him, had he chosen to fight back, the Father had given him at his disposal, he says, 12 legions of angels. That's thousands upon thousands of angels that could have come and delivered him from that. But he chose to suffer in order to accomplish the will of the Father and bring glory to his name. And as we, as believers, are going through this life, we are said, we will endure suffering. Some of that suffering will be directly because we are seeking to follow Christ, because we're set apart from the world around us, because people in our, in, increasingly in our culture, they don't understand, they don't get what it means to follow Christ. Certainly true in Peter's time, as the, the, the pagan world around them and their multiplicity of gods and even practicing emperor worship didn't understand the single-mindedness of following after one God, the one true God, and His Son, Jesus Christ, who came and suffered and died in our place so that we might be forgiven and that we might be adopted into His family. And so we are instructed to follow Christ's example, to focus on His work, His character, so that it might be emulated in us. And so Peter tells us to remember the gospel that has been preached, remember the hope that we have at the end of chapter 3, he talks about that hope of the gospel beginning in verse 18 and he works through what Christ has accomplished and he works through the truth of the gospel that has been proclaimed since the days of Noah and he talks about the accomplishment of that through, the, through his resurrection and that he now sits at the right hand of the Father in power and in glory. And he does all of that so that we might arm ourselves with the same determination to endure through suffering that God may be glorified. And this is the title for our text this morning, Arm Yourselves for God's Purpose. We could simplify it and simply say, prepare yourselves for suffering, but it sounds a lot better to say, arm yourselves for God's purpose. But this is ultimately what Peter is saying. This is the primary instruction for our text this morning. I'd ask you to stand with me as we read from 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. 
For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Father, we come before you and we ask that you would continue to edify us through your word, to encourage our hearts, to empower us to walk by faith. We pray that we would take this word today and that we would be, that we would receive its instructions and that our hearts would be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. As I said earlier, suffering is a certainty. And as we continue to work our way through First Peter, we'll see that suffering is the primary context in which Peter writes and, and continues to encourage the church. And we're reminded once again as we look to God's Word that when we suffer, there is purpose in our suffering. And not just general purpose, but God-glorifying purpose. It's not, just, it's not just by chance that we suffer, but it's part of God's plan. It's part of God's will for us to suffer. Philippians 1.29 says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. You see, Christ is our great example of suffering, for enduring unjust suffering in our place. And that when we suffer, a lot of times we think somehow that God doesn't love us. Sometimes when we're suffering, we think that somehow God has forgotten about us. And we wonder where He is and how could He have abandoned us. But the reality is, is when we look back to the cross and we see the suffering of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we recognize that God was working through that great injustice to accomplish such a glorious redemption, we can draw strength and remember that even in the midst of our suffering, God also is at work to glorify His name and accomplish His purposes. God has purpose for our suffering. And we need to remember that as we look to Christ and we look to the reality of what sin did to Him, when you look at the sufferings of Christ, you need to remember He was paying a penalty for sin. And it grieves my heart that so many within the Christian community today make so lightly of sin when it cost the Lord His life, when it cost the Lord His blood. And yet, so many, even in, even in the churches, as we try to make the gospel more agreeable for people, we try to make it more attractive for people, and we try to draw people in with, with the gospel, we tend to, to downplay the significance of sin. We tend to downplay the call to holiness in the Christian life. But we cannot pursue Christ without pursuing holiness. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not that we get holy and get saved. That's not what happens. But as Christ saves us, He saves us for the purpose of growing us in holiness. 
He saves us for the purpose of making us more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Now we don't, I think sometimes what's happening in the churches is it's, it's, a, it's an, an overreaction to some of the, the legalism and some of the harshness that has come down through the church over the years. Because a lot of times what happens in the church is we get comfortable in our walk with Christ, we get comfortable in our own righteousness, and we begin to look around at the sin in the world, and then instead of sharing the truth of Christ in order that they might know His forgiveness, what we tend to do is we tend to condemn them for their failures rather than encourage them with the truth of the gospel. And because the church has done that in the past, kind of a a reaction to that is that now the church doesn't want to talk about sin. It doesn't want to talk about the seriousness of sin. It doesn't want to talk about the call to holiness. And so it downplays sin. You don't confront people about their sin. You You just talk to them about God's love. Now, God is love. He is the epitome of love. He is the very definition of love. And it's because of His love that He paid such a high price for sin. So we cannot make light of what cost our Lord and Savior so dearly. We must confront the reality of sin. We must recognize that there is no sin that is beyond the grace of God. We need to help people recognize that reality, that truth. And I think that's that's kind of where where this comes in. And the the church is really trying to find this balance here. Is how do, we, how do we extend the grace of God to those who we would consider the worst of sinners? How do we extend the grace of God and still maintain that pursuit of holiness? And, and, and this, and this, but this is what we're called to do. But the reality, and this is where, where Peter comes in, this is what his, his text is really about, is helping us to understand that listen, our responsibility is not to make people holy. A lot of times we, 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 we talk about the necessity of, of being good and doing good works, and, and all of those things are good and right because that is, as Christians, that is what we are called to do. But our responsibility in reaching the world around us is not to help them be better people. Our responsibility around, for the people around us is to share with them the truth of who Christ is so that they might get saved, so that they might be forgiven, so that they might enter into a relationship. Am I back on? All right. Maybe with my jacket off, I won't rub it so much. Where was I? <laughs> oh. We have to recognize that our responsibility is to share the gospel with people. And then God will sanctify them in His truth. And God will grow them. And one of the ways that God grows people, the way that God grows us, is through suffering. It is part of God's plan for us. God is working through our suffering to bring us to holiness. Look at, look at our text, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, this, that word connects this back to what 
Peter has just been sharing about the, the power of the gospel, the power of Christ in the gospel. It's in all that it, this discussion of the superiority of Jesus Christ over everything, over sin, over death, over corruption. All authority has been given unto him. He says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Now, as we look at this instruction from Peter, two questions immediately come to my mind. First is, what does it mean to arm yourselves? And then what purpose is Peter referring to? Now, the term that's translated, arm yourselves, it's, it's a word that pictures an army preparing for battle. And this is what Peter is calling us to do in recognition of the suffering that is certain to come into our lives, that we need to be prepared. There is a battle that needs to be fought, and that battle is directly related to the purpose or the intent being referred to in this passage. He says, Christ has suffered also in the flesh. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose. That is the same purpose that Christ had. Well, what was Christ's purpose? Christ's purpose was what? To defeat sin, right? Okay, well, that creates a problem for us because we can't do what Christ has already done. We don't do what Christ already did. But if we understand Christ's purpose in a more general sense, in the more general sense in which Peter has approached it throughout this letter, in that, in that the purpose of Christ was to submit to the will of the Father that God might be glorified through His actions, then that is something, that is a purpose that we can lay hold of and that we can join Christ in as we seek to obey Christ and honor Him with our lives and glorify Him through life. We must prepare ourselves for the suffering that, was, that will come so that we might endure it and glorify God in it, understanding that we may not see the reason why we suffer, but we can know that God has purpose in it as we are being conformed into the very image of Christ. If we see that purpose, if we know that God is working and being glorified, then we can face it with new courage. We can face it with perseverance, even as Christ faced his accusers, his detractors, his enemies, and he endured. For the glory of the Father, we also can endure. And this is what we're being called to do. And we're going to look just at the first two verses this morning a little bit more in depth as we speak of two purposes in particular that come out of this text. One is the, the purpose of desisting from sin. We could say the purpose of defeating sin. And then also we'll be looking at the purpose of demonstrating God's glory. So let's look back at verse 1. He says, Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now when we read that, we read that text, and there, it requires some explanation, because if I were to ask you this morning, how many of you have suffered? Any hands? Anybody suffer out there? Right. We've all endured suffering at, at, at some point, at some kind, in some way. All right. Now... Out of those of you that admittedly have suffered in this life, how many of you have ceased from sin? Yeah. So you're like, okay, Peter, what are you talking about here? Because I've had my share of suffering, but I certainly haven't ceased from sin. 
But what Peter is pointing us to is this, this reality this of ongoing sanctification. That as we suffer, we are learning to desist from sin. We're, learning, we're growing in holiness. He's, we're, we're, he's pushing us toward, to be conformed into the very image of Christ. We're looking to His example. Now Christ, you can say, well, Christ suffered and died, right? And we know that death, certainly in death, we will cease from sin, right? When we get to that point, we have ceased from sin. We're done. And I think part of what Peter's reminding us is that endurance is unto death. Perseverance is unto death. Some of the believers that Peter is talking to in this text would die for their faith. All of them, we're all going to die eventually, right? Unless the Lord comes back, right? If the Lord comes back today, amen, hallelujah, we can go and be in glory with Him. But if, but if the Lord tarries, if He, if he waits, we, we have an appointed time in which we're going to die. Now, Christ, Christ lived and died. Now, Christ didn't die and cease from sin, right? Because Christ never sinned. So He didn't cease from sin in His death. But as we, like I said, as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of Christ, as we look at how the Lord is working in our life, we are growing in holiness. And God uses suffering to accomplish that reality. Holiness is so important. As I was preparing the sermon this week, I almost went in a whole nother direction because just this whole concept, this whole idea of the Lord's desire for us to be holy has just so gripped my heart because I recognize just how short we all fall in obtaining to that standard. God purposes in our salvation to give us victory over sin. Christ has given us the victory over sin through the cross, officially and ultimately. But there is a practical holiness that He intends for us to attain to, that He intends for us to practice in this life as His representatives. We ought to hate sin. We ought to hate it with a passion because of what it did to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because of what it cost Him on our account. But we don't hate it enough. Instead, we make excuses for it. We demonstrate lack of devotion to Christ and His purpose. Not because we're not saved, but because we haven't matured in some area of our spiritual life. We struggle with self-importance and recognition. We regularly think that we are the most important person at any given time, and things ought to conform to our desires. I mean, just, just think about your life for a moment. When you go to the grocery store and you get in line, and the line just seems to stop because there's that person in front of you, or the cashier, or somebody, it's somebody's fault, the line's not moving, and you get agitated and you get frustrated. Why? Because things aren't going your way, right? I mean, we, we are the most important person at any given time. Think about it 
You know, you go to the doctor's appointment. You're sitting out in the waiting room. 20 minutes past your appointment. What in the world? Is my time not important? My, my time is just, I'm going to send him a bill. You know? We have, when we have no idea what may be going on in the other room, we have no idea what difficulty that doctor may be dealing with or what some patient might be dealing with that's caused us to be delayed. Because our default position is, I'm the most important person. Things should be done my way according to my timetable in order that I might be satisfied. That is not what Christ has called us to. Christ has called us to submit ourselves to His authority that we might reflect Him in those difficult circumstances, that He might be glorified in us. We all struggle with different areas of sin in our life. Self-centered thinking is just one area that's easy to highlight because it's so easily identifiable in myself. But Christ suffered to defeat sin. And he suffered so that we might desist from it. And he uses suffering for that purpose. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 9. The Lord says, I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. The imagery is that of a refiner's fire, someone who's, who works with jewelry, who uses the fire to, to melt out the impurities. You melt down the metal and the impurities rise to the top and you scrape it off and you're left with a purer metal. This is what the Lord does to us through the fires of suffering. He purifies us. He uses trials and suffering to bring about purity. And there's two primary ways that I see this happening in the lives of believers. First of all, the Lord uses the suffering of discipline to bring about holiness. When we sin against God, He disciplines us in order that we might learn to be righteous and holy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. The Lord disciplines His children. Later on in that same chapter, the Lord says that if we're without discipline, then we're not actually His children. We're illegitimate children. So if you can sin and the Lord doesn't convict you, and the Lord doesn't discipline you, you are not in a right relationship with God through Christ Jesus. God does not allow His children to sin and get away with it. It typically starts off with just a, just a, a light conviction. The Spirit convicts us. I say a light conviction. Sometimes it's heavy conviction. The Spirit convicts us when we do something that's wrong, something that offends Him. Something, and if we don't respond to that, the discipline can become very severe indeed. We don't like to talk about the severity of God because we like to think about God as just being love, and He is. But God is also severe and his, because He cares about holiness. You think about David. When David committed, had that adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, following that adulterous relationship, there was a child that was conceived. And the Lord said because of David's sin, He was going to take that child. And the child got sick and the child died. That's harsh. 
That seems very harsh to us. You know why? But it seems so harsh to us because we don't appreciate the holiness of God. Because if we were to appreciate the holiness of God, we would not think it as being so harsh, but we would recognize it as being just. God's holiness is so important to him. You go to the New Testament, book of Acts, chapter 5. You have a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. Came to the disciples with deception in their heart, saying one thing, doing something else, and the Lord killed them one at a time as each of them came individually before the apostles. It's severe, but it was just because God is holy and His holiness demands justice. The discipline of the Lord is meant to teach us and instruct us in the way of righteousness. Just as any parent seeks to instruct their children through discipline to teach them right from wrong, so the Lord does to His children. He disciplines us. But this isn't the only way in which suffering is used because, honestly, the, the, the context of Peter isn't really dealing with discipline primarily. I'm, the, in this section in particular, he's not talking about discipline. He's talking about a more unjust suffering, that is, suffering that cannot be explained, suffering that cannot be just easily, well, you know, I know there's sin and, and I need to deal with it, but it's that suffering that causes us to draw closer to God. Because here's, here's the truth of suffering. When we are suffering, and especially when we don't know why, when suffering comes into our life, it causes us to turn to the Lord, to trust in Him, to draw close to Him, to, to cry out to Him. To depend on Him. Think about the prophet Elijah. You think back over his life and all that God did through him. And Elijah was a prophet who suffered. Elijah had to announce to King Ahab that there would be a drought on the land for three and a half years. And so Elijah goes off into the wilderness to escape the wrath of Ahab and uh, doesn't know how he's going to provide for himself, but what does God do? God sends the ravens to bring food to Elijah. A little later on, Elijah has a showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Wonderful, glorious display of God's power over the prophets of Baal. And Elijah is vindicated in his preaching in the preaching of God and the, and the righteousness which he represents, that God alone is God and that Baal has no power and the prophets of Baal are wiped out and Jezebel says she's going to kill Elijah and Elijah runs away and he prays for death because he's afraid. And what does the Lord do? The Lord sends an angel to feed him and strengthen him and give him endurance. You see, when we depend on the Lord, he manifests 
His presence in unique ways because He wants us to draw close to Him. He wants us to to grow in our dependence on Him because the closer we get to God, the holier we become. Because you're not going to get to God apart from holiness. But the more we recognize our dependence on Him, the more we put aside those things that keep us separated from Him. Suffering draws us closer to God's side. He saves us for His name's sake, and through suffering, He moves us toward holiness that we may be able to testify, as Paul did in Galatians 2.20. He says there, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. See, it's the recognition of what Christ has done for us that leads us to holiness. Because we recognize we're not doing it in our own strength. We can't do it in our own strength. But we have to depend on the Lord to give us endurance, to give us strength, to allow us to persevere so that we might live in accordance with the Spirit. That we, it might be said of us that Christ is living and working through us as we are conformed into His likeness. Defeating sin practically as Christ has defeated it ultimately. There's a second purpose I want to share with you this morning, and that is the purpose of demonstrating God's glory. Verse 2. That's the end of verse 1 because it's just part of the same sentence. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. What is it to do the will of God? It is to be obedient to His Word in order that He might be glorified in us. It's pretty simple, isn't it? We're not to follow our own personal desires any longer. We have come to Christ in order that we might serve Him, that we might accomplish His will, that we might do what honors and glorifies Him. The fact that we have a rest of the time in the flesh indicates that we have not yet suffered to the point of ceasing from sin completely. I mean, it's pretty obvious, but it's just Peter just emphasizes it there. The rest of the time in our flesh shows that we have a responsibility and a role to play until the time when we do completely cease from sin. So how do you just stop sinning? I mean, we know we're supposed to. We're nowhere to quit. We're no, we know that we're not supposed to sin. We know that we're supposed to, to, to give it all up. And you, and you hear stories of people sometimes that were in, involved in gross sin, and, and, they, and the Lord came, and He delivered them, and they saved them, and, he, and, and just suddenly there were certain sins in their life that they just stopped altogether. But even in those great testimonies, they didn't stop sinning completely. That's just some of the outward things that, that uh, stopped um, completely and gloriously they stopped. But you can't just stop sinning, like deciding to quit, unless you have a new focus and direction that takes your mind off of sin and focuses you on something else. It's like if I were to tell you right now, you know, don't think about a pink elephant, right? What's everybody going to do? They're going to think about a pink elephant, right? Because you can't just choose to not think about a pink elephant. 
you have to replace that thought with something else so that you don't do the thing you're not supposed to do. It's just like that with sin because sin is so ingrained in us. Sin is such a part of who we are and, and what we do. And, and we, can't just, we can't just quit it. We have to replace our, our thought process. We have to change our focus and take it off of the things of this life and look to Christ. I mean, that is com- continuously, that is what Peter is telling us. Focus your heart on Christ. Sanctify Him in your hearts. Follow His example. Recognize what He's done. Do what He's done so that you might accomplish the will of God. Because you're not here to live any longer for the lust of the flesh. You're not here for your own purpose. You're here for God's purpose. You're here to accomplish His will. We still have a life to live, and it may be difficult, and we may suffer until death comes, where we'll gain ultimate victory. But in the meantime, as we live the rest of our life, we are meant to honor God in that time. And we may mess up from time to time. We may mess up a whole lot from time to time. But God is ready and willing to forgive us because He's not primarily concerned about our mess-ups. He's primarily concerned about our heart. And so He uses those things in order to reveal in us our shortcomings and to grieve us in our sin so that we might overcome and that we might pursue righteousness and Christ-likeness and honor Him in obedience to His Word. So the real question is, when you sin, does sin grieve your heart? Or do you try to look for excuses to continue in it? Because that's a tendency that we have also. We are, made, we are remade, reborn at the time of salvation. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are given new desires, a new heart. But it needs to be worked out in practical manner. Paul tells us in Romans 6.13, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We are no longer slaves to sin but we are servants of the Lord. So the way that we stop sinning, the way we cease from sin, is to pursue Christ, to study His Word, to seek to be obedient to His truth. He has purposed to make us like Him, that we might honor Him as He points us and provides for us an an example that leads us to an eternal perspective. And a perspective, by the way, which is elaborated on later here as we get down to verse 6. We're going to talk about that next week. But as Peter speaks of the time lived, and the, Peter goes on in the next few verses to speak of time lived in the bondage of sin and the separation from the surrounding culture when you come to serve Christ. And you become an outcast from society and you're mocked because of a life lived under Christ instead of under the culture. And it is unjust suffering. And it is something that Peter's audience 
could identify with. It's something that we increasingly are able to identify with in our, in our culture, in our community. It is unjust suffering, but it is expected suffering. And because it is expected, we can prepare for it. We can arm ourselves with that purpose of glorifying God. We can arm ourselves with that purpose of recognizing how God is working in us. We can draw encouragement from His Word in recognizing that Christ suffered and He defeated sin that we might desist from it. That Christ suffered to give us an example that we might recognize that that He has called us to live a life of holiness so that He might be glorified in us. Suffering will come, but we can face it with a readiness to respond and the understanding that we are carrying out God's purpose. And just that reality, if you've ever gone through suffering and recognized in the midst of it that God was working through it, it eases the burden. It makes it so much easier to endure and to encounter. Suffering's never easy, but it is lessened. The burden is lessened by the knowledge of God's blessing on us. And I want to close this morning with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in commenting on the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, the verse that says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Bonhoeffer recognizing that the mourning in that verse is mourning primarily over sin. This is what he says. The disciple community does not shake off sorrow as though it were no concern of its own, but willingly bears it. And in this way, they show how close are the bonds which bind them to the rest of humanity. But at the same time, they do not go out of their way to look for suffering or try to contract out of it by adopting an attitude of contempt and disdain. They simply bear the suffering which comes their way as they try to follow Jesus Christ and bear it for His sake. Sorrow cannot tire them or wear them down. It cannot embitter them or cause them to break down under the strain. Far from it. For they bear their sorrow in the strength of Him who bears them up, who bore the whole suffering of the world upon the cross. It is in Christ that we find strength to endure. To endure those things which cause anxiety, discomfort, struggle, and suffering in this life. If we share in His sufferings, we also will share in His victory. Glory be to God through Jesus Christ who gives us that hope and that victory. If you don't know the victory that Christ offers, if you haven't experienced what it means to have forgiveness of sins and to walk with Christ, you can do that today. God is ready to receive you. But as I know many of you are believers... And you are walking with Christ, but the reality is, is we all struggle. We all struggle with sin. We all struggle with anxiety and fear. We need to recognize that God is at work in that. And He seeks to encourage you to endure that His 
purpose might be accomplished in you. Remembering, we are not here to serve our own purpose, but to serve the purpose of Him who died for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for the example of Christ Jesus our Lord, for His faithfulness in the midst of our suffering and His suffering, so that we might be faithful in our suffering. Lord, give us the strength of the Spirit that we might endure, that we might overcome, that we might gain victory over sin. And Lord, if there be anyone here today that needs to know the power of your forgiveness through faith in your Son, I pray that you would reveal that to them and draw them to yourself, that they might respond. Or if there's a believer present, Lord, that's just been especially struggling with either with sin that they can't seem to overcome or just... just hardship and suffering in life, I pray, Father, that you would encourage them in this very moment, that you would strengthen their heart and help them to endure as they look to the cross and to the example before them, and they draw strength from the truth of your word and the promises it contains. And may you help each one of us, Lord, day by day, to grow in the likeness of Christ, that we might be more effective witnesses for His glory in the world. Let us not worry about how we're different from the world, but let us seek to be like Christ, to share with the world what it's like to serve Him. We ask this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.